0: Hey, this is Susie and I'm speaking with you today from Bunjalung Country. I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Widgeable Wiable elders past, present and emerging. Joining me in the Southern Cross University Lismore radio studio is broadcast media professional and journalism lecturer Jonty Sinclair. Over the last six years, Jonty has been exploring collaborative, multidisciplinary research that engages her background with placemaking and audio design. In 2016, Jonti developed the Nimbin Sound Trail and in the same year, the Southern Cross University Cube Walk Sound Trail, with making radio students on the Lismore campus. Jonti joins me to discuss her latest audio project, Flood Stories, an interactive community project documenting Lismore residents' reaction to the 2017 tropical ex-Cyclone Debbie major flood event. Hi, Jonti, and welcome to the studio.
1: Hi, Susie. Thanks for having me in here today.
0: It's great that you can be here. I believe, as well as being a Southern Cross lecturer, that you are a Lismore local. Can you tell us a little about the 2017 floods? What was it really
2: like?
1: It was enormous. I mean, the Bureau of Meteorology said around 20,000 people were evacuated from Lismore and Mowillambar. A lot of the, the rain that came down just had nowhere to go. It had already been wet. I think what's most outstanding about the 2017 flood was it was the first one that had overtopped the levee that had been installed in the early, what, around 2005, I think, or something like that. So it was the first time that the flood water had come into the CBD since that time, and I guess a lot of people questioned whether they had become a little complacent maybe or had put invested a lot of faith in the levee itself. People who lived in the north and south Lismore areas also found that there was, it had changed the correlation between how much water was coming into their houses and what the actual river gauges were saying that the flood was at. They were like, well. I shouldn't have water in here. I sh- I still have like 15, 20 centimetres to go until my house should be inundated. I'm fortunate I live up outside of Lismore, just up on a ridge. So for me, the flood was something I experienced, you know, kind of from the outside, if you like. I couldn't get into Lismore. I was separated from my child for a few days as well because he wasn't at home with me when the... The night that the flood arrived. And it was, it's always difficult knowing that your friends are, you know, being inundated by water and there's not much you can do about coming in to help
0: yet. So, from these floods came the inspiration for flood stories. What does this project involve?
1: You know, in 2019, I'm going to take you on a side trip. I had a, a study leave um, trip that I took to uh, many places, but one of them was to Ireland to an audio arts festival called Hearsay. And there I met a group of people who uh, had a project called the Empathy Museum, and one of their projects within that broader remit was a project called Walk In My Shoes. And uh, you would put uh, headphones on and use a little media player And put on somebody's shoes, like literally put on somebody's shoes, and go out and walk and listen to their story whilst wearing their shoes. And I listened to a story about a woman who lost her husband. So a story of grief. And it was really powerful. And I'd always worked in audio, um, audio documentary, uh, and I was always really interested in the personal perspectives. So I was really inspired by that. And I initially tried to get the Empathy Museum to come to Lismore, but... I didn't have funding to do that and they wouldn't come without funding and they were pretty booked up. So I I did begin to start thinking about, um, I was inspired by their project and thought about the importance of telling the story of what had happened in the 2017 flood. And so this was around mid-2019. So it took a couple of years for the project to to come about and uh, I decided that I would make a call out for people who were impacted by the flood and people who had helped in the cleanup uh, after the flood to come and tell their story and I organised in February 2020 Uh, a couple of public storytelling workshops. So I invited people who felt ready to tell their stories because I understand they're very traumatic stories for people. And I think, you know, Lismore has had over the last summer two minor floods and a moderate flood. And I know that people felt very triggered by those events. So the anxieties around flood is still quite present for many, many people in the Northern Rivers. So I had this... um, storytelling workshop and I had ultimately 10 people became involved as storytellers for flood stories and we did a workshop about a particular style of telling a story which you could think of as an acoustic film and so we workshopped that and then from there I interviewed them and started to edit their stories together into we we spoke for maybe an hour each with those but we brought them down to some people's stories were told in 10 minutes, but other people's stories take a half hour to tell as well. Due to COVID, the launch of Flood Stories was delayed by a year. How did that affect the project? Oh, you know, we were about 10 days out from the launch, uh, the 2020 launch, and we could feel COVID coming along. And yeah, before I spent the money on the shipping container being delivered and the set being built, I just had to admit that it wasn't the time it was important for it to happen on the third anniversary to me I thought that was you know an important anniversary three years out we had some space from it but it was still an important event on our recent horizons but it it had to it had to pause Uh, and we paused it for a year just over a year but it hasn't really changed other than We've perhaps got more emotional distance from the 2017 flood. You know, we've actually had a bushfire around the area. We've had bushfires and we've had a global pandemic. So there are those other events that have happened. But, you know, we've also had a flash flood. We've also had two minor floods and a moderate flood in Lismore since 2017. So floods are still pressing on people's uh, emotional nerves. And the the recent floods over the summer uh, have people have sort of noted. And also when the fourth anniversary of the flood came around at the end of March and start of April, people were still really feeling it. I think it's still an important story to tell and it's as important now to tell it. Uh, And apart from that, I would say that it's just as it should be. It's just arriving late. Flood Stories will be launched on the 28th of April. Can you tell us what we can expect at the um, Flood Stories? So... I've actually just had delivered to the quad today a shipping container. It's a bit newer than perhaps I would have liked. I would have liked one that was looking a bit battered as though it had been travelled to the quad on the back of some floodwaters and just left there. But what, when we have the installation um, complete, people will arrive at the, quad, at the quad and see this peculiar shipping container there and inside the container will be two rows of uh, coat hooks, coat you know, coat hooks, and along there will be five raincoats on each side opposite each other, so you can picture these bright yellow Macintosh-style raincoats. And at the base of of the raincoats will be a pair of gumboots. And in the pocket is a little MP3 player, very, very... It's deliberately old school. It's deliberately simple um, and a set of deliberately simple headphones. This is really meant to sort of be quite... um, quite pared back, the experience. Uh, So the idea is that you say whether you want to hear the story of someone who was affected by flood or somebody who helped in the rescue and the recovery uh, and you're directed to don one particular raincoat and pair of gumboots and you put the headphones on, you start up the MP3 player and there is a voice, there's a voice of one of ten storytellers there who will direct you to begin walking in a certain direction, and we'll direct you at different points, in between telling you their flood story. You know what happened to them around March thirty, thirty-one, first of April, second of April, and beyond. Twenty
2: seventeen. Myself and and my crew, uh, three other firefighters, we all got in the truck and we drove down the Bruxner Highway at twenty to four, quarter to four in the morning.
0: That night. When I got really scared, it was in the middle of the night, so it was really dark and I could hear the water rushing and I could hear how high it was. That was my fear, was that the water would actually push the house off its metal poles.
2: There was a lot of trepidation because we realised that it, it was potentially a dangerous situation we were going down to.
0: Because I think now that that would have killed us. I don't think there's a way out of that. I tried to do things like roll up towels and rugs and blankets and put them around the doors. But the first sound that I heard was this bubbling and the water came up through all the drains in the bathroom. Then it started to flood in around the skirting boards, all around the walls around the house.
2: So the crew went and did a final sweep through the station. We all gathered again in the watch room and... From there, I pressed the button for the siren for three minutes.
0: The coffee tables, chairs and the beds were the first things to start floating.
2: You watch all those movies over the years of London in the Blitz or whatever like that and you hear that siren going. That's exactly the siren we've got on the fire station.
1: So
0: I won't stay again in a flood that big. As far as community connection goes, these sorts of stories are really important to bring people
1: together. I, I I really think that the personal perspectives of major events are what st- stitches all of that sense of shared experience together. Because even though those stories are unique and individual, there's also so much that's shared in terms of the emotions that have been felt, the sorts of experiences that have passed for people, there's so much commonality in there as well. And a big part of everyone's storytelling was about the clean-up as well, which is where community really showed itself so fully, so warmly. Um, uh, I think everyone was blown away with how amazing the Lismore community was. And it was people from outside Lismore coming in to help as well. So, yeah, community was a really big aspect of the stories. And and also thinking about the future as well. You know, what can we as a community say that we learnt from the 2017 flood? Uh, what can we do for future climate emergencies? You know, not just floods but fires. We've had bushfires since then. We've had a global pandemic. You know, what have we learnt as a community about how to support each other?
0: Yeah, good questions. I I was in Mo during the floods, and we got similarly badly impacted. Um, so I can imagine it be very interesting for people around the region who mm. were affected to come to Lismore and find out their story. Yeah, and they come with their own stories.
1: Mm. and I, I've built in a opportunity for people to submit their own recordings of their flood stories. So I, I have a call out, which will become. Uh, really start to be apparent as the installation begins where um, when people come and do a flood story walk, I'd like them to use their mobile phones to record a short reflection on what their experience was like and then they can email that to lismorefloodstories at gmail.com and if they also have a flood story of their own, they can similarly record their flood story on their phone and send that as an MP3 recording through um, and by sending those stories through you're granting me permission to be able to use them in a in a future storytelling way, or to build up a an online repository of flood stories as well. Do you see this model being used in other communities? I mean, that's what I began to really understand through the process of you know getting the storytelling workshop together thinking through really carefully on the mental health ramifications of that storytelling process i had many conversations i in fact i at one of the workshops i had uh, a trauma counselor come to provide some oversight and support both me and the participants and she she said that this model was you know quite a therapeutic model and the feedback i've been getting from the storytellers is that it's been incredibly therapeutic for them to tell their stories, and I've just been going through the process of asking them to listen to the version of their story that's come through the editing process and to give it its blessing. And most people have come back and said that they were really moved by it. Some have said that they found themselves moved by tears, that they were pleased to have an archive of that experience, that profound experience. So I have thought for a few years now that this is a model I would like to take to other communities in recovery from not just climate emergencies and climate disasters but other other events and incidents that have occurred either historically or currently which have led to a separation within a community. Mm. And that's what I would really like to focus a lot of my audio walk projects on in going into the future is exactly that, is using this as a therapeutic and healing model of audio storytelling uh, and community reconciliation. It's so powerful to be able
0: to tell your own story, mm-hmm. to have somebody listen to it, and to, to find that shared commonality of experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Moving off flood stories for a moment, I'm going to come clean here. I am a student of yours and this interview is challenging me on a number of levels. But the reason why I have taken your Making Radio and Podcast unit this semester is firstly to improve my practical skills, but to also find out how I can possibly slot myself into the ever-changing world of journalism. In your 2015 article, Designing Experiential Journalism curricula that prepare students for the new and uncertain world of journalism work. You write that the world of journalism in the digital age is changing faster than university curricula can keep up. Given this, what are the essential skills that you focus on when teaching
1: students at Southern Cross University? I, I think one of the most important things is to be comfortable with the ideas that you generate. To feel confidence in your ideation processes, that you um, can come up with great creative ideas um, and to provide skills that support ideation as well. So that you've got some stories to tell, that you are telling important stories as well. So there's that, there's the ideation. And and it's really important these days to I guess encourage students to have a broad portfolio of technical skills, um, a broad understanding of what's going out in there in the world, and also a sort of sense of, I guess, entrepreneurialism or a capacity to be your own show, to be your own employer, because that's the way things are moving um, and so much of the great storytelling, particularly in the kind of podcasting area that happens, is quite often generated by independent producers um, and then get picked up from there. So, yeah, there's some of the important things. Um, and, of course, you know, providing a kind of critical frame about understanding what role the media has in society uh, and I try to encourage so many students who like to sort of say that the media is bad or not to be trusted, and that's not the case. There is plenty of excellent media out there, and it's really, I guess, about developing a, a, a digital and critical literacy about the media uh, and how it supports um, truth-telling in society um, and also how it's thwarted, I guess, by other agents uh, to... Um, I guess brings to a degree some misinformation out there and the kind of agendas that can be part of the the environment as well. So, yeah, I mean, we've got all those sort of critical looking, listening, thinking uh, skills as well to teach.
0: Mm. And I would think in order to survive in today's world uh, as a media professional, you have to be pretty flexible yeah.
1: and adaptable. Are they the sort of skills that can be taught? I think there are things which are innate, which include breathing, and swallowing, um, blinking, your heart is beating. But I think the rest of it we can learn. And sometimes what needs to be shifted, if you like, is a mindset to recognise that we are all capable of continuing to learn. Uh, we need to be able to embrace change and accept the impermanence of things, I think. And then that becomes part of that flexibility. I think when we become rigid and we're not we don't want things to change it's when it gets difficult. we need to be able to accept change um, but we also need to defend our, our rights as, as individuals in society and 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 in, and in workplaces as well. So I, I think that's important. We're in a podcast at the moment, and for me, one of the more noticeable changes
0: in the media landscape is the explosion of podcasts and their
1: popularity. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, podcasting's mm, how old now? I guess, you know, coming up towards 20 years old in a way. The term was coined around, I think, I don't know, 2003, 2005, by a Guardian journalist. I think his name was Ben Hammersley called them podcasts and uh, the name is stuck. Look, when the series called Serial began in the US and that's been, um trying to remember what year, that was maybe 2014, 2013 or something. Um, it's been a while. It's amazing how that's actually quite a while ago but it still feels very fresh. That program got 1 million downloads per, per episode and that was absolutely groundbreaking at the time and it was a groundbreaking program indeed Uh, and it really began to launch a the growth of audiences i think for crafted investigative audio storytelling in australia it it had perhaps taken a little bit longer to get hold we have a smaller audience here but there was some really surprising data about podcasts audiences in australia that emerged early this year which showed that in 2020 podcast audiences had grown remarkably. And I can't remember the the figure now, but it's like something around 20%, like a significant level of growth. And I put that down to the coronavirus, to working from home, to people going on long walks, solitary walks often because they needed to separate. Um, And people were staying at home and they were looking for company and they turned to podcasts and they began listening to a lot more podcasts than they had before. Mm. And I think there's been a, a real also push in development. Um, Audible has started to find a a, a space in the Australian uh, podcast market. They make books, but they also make uh podcasts. And uh there's quite a few Australian podcasts that are coming and being supported through that as well. And the newspapers were getting in on the act. You know, the Australian, the age in particular, we're doing some amazing, often true crime-based work, which has significant audiences. There's a real pull for that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that there's a bit of a golden age in Australia now for podcasting, and hopefully audiences will continue to grow and develop, and I I find it a really rewarding uh, field to be producing in and um, also to be teaching. Uh, It's one of my favourite units to teach is the radio and podcasting unit. Mm it's very multidisciplinary we've got people from sort of all over the university that take it as a as an elective and one of the things that i've loved about teaching this unit for the last sort of 12 years or so has been that like you say people will come in and do this as a an elective unit or they come in as screen students or they come in as creative writing students and all of a sudden they discover a new place for storytelling and they discover the richness of sound design and its capacity to help paint pictures and tell stories. And next thing you know, they're off doing amazing work in audio. Uh, it's like a, it's a place where people come looking for a passion and, and sometimes find it here, and I do love that. It's inspiring. Do you see Flood Stories becoming a podcast Look, I hadn't thought about that because part of what Flood Stories is doing is asking you to walk as if in the shoes of another person. Uh, We ask you to follow a path that they direct you along, that you're wearing a uniform, a Flood Stories uniform of a raincoat and a pair of gumboots so that you are um, actively both listening and moving. There's a combination of listening and moving together which is – really part of the magic of that kind of immersive aspect of it but the intention is once the installation itself is down that I will put all those stories onto the lismorefloodstories.net website and that people will be able to listen to them as if it were a podcast or will be able to come down to the quad and start listening to them and and without the raincoat and the gumboots or BYO raincoat and gumboots and do the walks on their own but no I, I don't I don't see it as a podcast. I I think there's something especially magic about hearing stories in place Mm. and actually going to the place where things happened and listening to somebody talk about something that happened there. That's powerful.
0: So it starts on Thursday, the 28th of April. How long will it be running
1: for and what are the details? Okay, so it's running for nine days. So it's until the uh, 6th of May. It's open every day for various times, except for the Monday. That's my Sunday. That's going to be my day off. If you want to find out when it's happening, you need to go to the Quad website and look up Flood Stories there and all the session times will be there. But generally, there's a morning session every day and then on Wednesday, it opens, so the 28th. uh, And on the Thursdays and the Friday, there's an evening session from 4 to 6 p.m. as well for people to pick up on it after work. Janty, thank you very much for your time today. Good luck. Thank you.